Welcome back to another episode of Writing for a Change, a podcast from Moody Publishers, where we take an inside look at the authors transforming our lives and shaping the world. I'm your host, Drew Dick, and I'm in a good mood today. It is, you know, I'm in the Pacific Northwest near Portland, Oregon, and yet it's sunny today. And I feel like spring has sprung. Uh, and uh, maybe I'm being overly optimistic here, but the no- long nuclear winter of this pandemic, the end of it at least, is in sight. <laughs> that feels good. <laughs> and I'm just grateful for the opportunity to be part of this podcast because it's just my favorite thing. I get to talk to my favorite authors about writing, about God, about how we change, about how God transforms us, how he uses the, the medium of the written word to do that. Uh, and my guest today uh, has written a book uh, that just was recently released here that is exactly on that topic. Uh, Chip Ingram is just one of the most brilliant and effective Bible communicators on the planet. Uh, he's a teaching pastor and CEO of Living on the Edge, which is an international teaching and discipleship ministry. Uh, he's He was a pastor for over 30 years. He's the author of many books, including Holy Ambition, Discover Your True Self, True Spirituality, The Real God, The Invisible War, and his recent release, which we'll be discussing today. And this is the title. I love the title. Yes, you really can change what to do when you're spiritually stuck. Chip and his wife, Teresa, have four grown children and 12 grandchildren, and they live in California. Chip, welcome to the podcast. Oh, good to be with you, Drew. Thanks so much. Well, thanks for joining us. Looking forward to it because I really enjoyed this book. Um, And and it's so excellent because it addresses such a painful and and perennial need in the life of every Christian. And that is, how do I grow? Or to put it in the negative, <laughs> why am I stuck spiritually? And I've seen this, I, and maybe this is just me, but I've seen this trajectory in many people's lives and even my own. I got to be honest. So your, your, your spiritual journey starts off with this bright burst of passion, right? You're just zealous and hungry for more of God, eager to share your faith, all those things. And you kind of grow quickly. But then somewhere along the line, you slam into a wall. So I guess my first question for you is what causes us to get stuck in the first place? You know, first of all, I just want to affirm for you and me personally, and then for all of our uh, listeners that I do think it's very normal to get stuck. And and Mm -hmm. some of it is just, it can be a lack of variety. You know, it's not a big deal. Uh, Some of it can be um, a deep issue that, you know, you're growing, 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 and God really wants to put his finger on, and he actually allows us to feel a bit frustrated. So we dig and go a little bit deeper and a little bit more open. Um, but, I, but I do think that, you know, we, we have to remember that um, there is a world system pulling us away from God. There's that battle between the flesh and the spirit that doesn't go away, and there's an enemy of our soul. And so I think those things are always working against this intimacy. And I think early on, God pours on some extra grace and allows our emotions and experiences to just so align with his word. And then little by little, he wants us to learn to trust him as a father and and walk by faith. So I think being stuck occasionally isn't, first of all, always bad. Uh, When I read the Psalms, Drew, I'm deeply encouraged that uh, David doesn't seem to have an up and to the right chart on his spiritual growth, right? I mean, yes. he's dancing before the Lord. God, you are so good. The joy of the Lord is my strength. 
And then, you know, three Psalms later, the guy sounds pretty clinically depressed. <laughs> Where are you, God? What's the deal? So I think we got to be careful that we don't think stuck as just an emotional state. But um, I do discuss in the book, I think, three very clear reasons why people get stuck. And when I mean stuck, it's like you're really not growing. You're mm -hmm. not really becoming more like Christ. You may be involved in religious activities, but uh, as far as the supernatural transformation of you becoming more and more like Jesus, which is the goal from God's perspective, is I do think there's three very specific reasons why we get stuck. What are those reasons? Don't leave us in suspense. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the first I would say is, um, it's what I call is uh, spiritual uh, isolation. Hmm. Um, we get stuck because we somehow unconsciously, and maybe it's mixed in with sort of the American independent mindset, uh, we, we think that we can do this on our own. And it's me and my Bible. Um, there's a steady decline in America. Uh, people used to go to church about three out of very committed believers, three out of four times a month. Uh, then it went down to 2.6. Mm. Currently in America, it's 1.6. Wow. About less than half of people in most churches. I mean, my, as a pastor, if we had half of our people in small groups, that, that's not great, but it was a good sign. Mm -hmm. um, the great majority of Christians go to a weekend service or now probably just online uh, one to 1 1.6 times a month. Less than half are in any kind of a small group. And of those, we all know you can just, you know, hey, how's it going? Great. Uh, what'd you get for question number five? Uh, we're studying the book of James. That's really neat. But hey, who do you think the 49ers are going to draft at quarterback? And did you know about there's a big sale on it? Anthropology, you know, whatever. And, you know, I, I think there's a lack of deep, intimate, other-centered, raw, I'm for you here, you're for me. We are going to be brother, 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 sister, or couples in this journey to become more like Christ and, and discover his will. So I think that's one reason. The second one, uh, it might be even more pervasive, is other than spiritual isolation, I call it spiritual ignorance. I think and this happened to me and pastoring for a lot of years and connected to a lot of pastors. I think only unconsciously someone comes to know Christ and we, we get them on, here's now what you need to do. And, mm. and don't misunderstand, doing is important, but okay, read your Bible. You need to start praying. Oh, here's a good Christian book. Uh, you you want to come to our group? Uh, hey, here, you can volunteer. And what we do is we give people like a second job. <laughs> and yet Ephesians 4 which is the book is rooted in is when we hear who we already are, our identity, that we're loved, that we're redeemed. The Christian life was meant to be, we, we live it out from being already accepted instead of for getting God's acceptance. Yeah, and so this, the second one is knowing your identity. So interesting. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then he doesn't say, now read the Bible more, do this, do this, do this. He says, with all humility. Mm. gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. There's this context of deep, intimate relationships. And those relationships are then rooted in a prayer that he just prayed that we would grasp, that we really are redeemed, loved. We have every spiritual blessing. God's for us. Uh, he's in control. He cares about us. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. 
And then the third one I just call spiritual myopia. So as I hear myself wandering a bit, so spiritual isolation, spiritual ignorance of who you are in Christ, your identity. And then the last one, spiritual myopia, just means you're nearsighted. It means you can't see things far away. And so what happens is I think the American dream and our Christianity has gotten to be about, do I feel spiritual? Am I growing? My world, my family, my job, my little world, as opposed to remembering you were transformed in order that you might be an agent of light and love and there is a kingdom and there's an agenda and there's an impact and you were made for eternity. And in other words, this big picture, there's a calling on your life. You've been specifically gifted. There's a role in the body that no one else can fulfill but you. Being a missional Christian as opposed to how am I feeling about this? And am I growing in this area? And is my marriage all that I want it to be? And it's not that those things are unimportant, but we get very nearsighted and we were made to change the world. Yes, man, that's good. I, I love it. I, it, it reminds me of a, a story that the late John Stott told once when he was visiting a church and, and, and someone got up and did a corporate prayer, which is good. And but all the prayers were like, you know, help so-and-so who's got the sniffles and pray that it'll be a good day. And thank you for this and that, you know, and he said, I felt like getting up and saying, you're a village people and you serve a village God. I don't think he did, but <laughs> that, yeah, that, uh, that, that nearsightedness, that, that kind of insularity or, or just focusing on your own life without realizing, man, God's got a cosmic plan here. He wants you to be an agent in his mission for the broader world. That's, that's great. And and I think since we just, you know, recently came out of, you know, Easter comes every year and we celebrate that, I was doing just a little staff meeting and I was trying to help our team, first for me, but when you look at, say, the, the issue of spiritual isolation, think of Jesus, fully God, fully man, I earnestly desire to spend this last meal with you. Mm. Uh, uh, will you stay and pray with me? In other words, I need you. And he goes wow. over and prays, you know, a stone throw away. And then he comes back disappointed. Guys, couldn't you stay awake for an hour? Hmm. Or, or the area idea of, of our identity. You know, in John 13, before he washes their feet, there's this amazing line. And Jesus, having loved his disciples to the end, knowing where he came from, where he's going. In other words, it was out of his security. It was out of his clear identity as loved by the father. Then it says he, he chose to you know, take off his outer garment and he serves. And then I think even on the cross and going through that excruciating time, he didn't emotionally want to die for us. He was fully human. And it says, but for the joy set before him. In other words, he had the big picture. He was thinking, mm-hmm. you know, and, and what happens is I can suffer well. I can go through pandemics, struggles in my marriage, problems with my kids, cancer, heartache, when I have eternity in mind. When, and so it's so important. Life change isn't just about, as I'll say this kindly, life change, the Christian life is not you becoming your best self. It's about God making you someone completely new. And that requires his people, his word, his truth, your identity in Christ, and knowing that you were made for a purpose so much bigger than yourself. Amen. Amen. You won't, you won't see that on Instagram usually, but that's a good word. <laughs> so this, this one might hurt 
a little bit for those of us uh, in ministry. But you write, and I'm quoting here, that evangelical Christianity has developed a culture in which no one is very surprised when someone prays to receive Christ and then continues in a lifestyle of minimal change. Why do you think that is, and how can we challenge that trend? Two, two or three thoughts. First is I think the American dream and the gospel just, it was like a, a marriage that was too good to resist. Mm. And, and I think it's, again, we can look at, quote, maybe really overt prosperity teaching, like God never wants you to be sick and he wants everyone to be rich. And we could go, Psh, you know, gosh, the Bible doesn't teach that. We don't believe that. But, but what happens is the, the underlying premises of some of that teaching has really crept into, I think, yes. all of us. And so pretty soon it's like, uh, well, God really does want me to be happy. I mean, I've done call-in shows with very Bible-believing evangelical believers. And, well, Chip, you know, I know the Bible says this, but I know God wants me to be happy. He, he certainly doesn't want me to stay in this unhappy marriage. Right. Or, you know, and so when, when the second thing is then when we compare ourselves with one another and let's, let's be at least honest to say, and at least in the last 20 years, the celebrity mentality among the evangelical church, you know, huge platforms and, and pretty soon, wow, if so-and-so, instead of what does the Bible say about the living a holy life or being other centered. And pretty soon we look at one another instead of looking at scripture and, and some of our kind of heroes, it's like, well, we all struggle. Guy was leading a small group and he goes, you know, I got three guys in my small group. And for a year and a half, every week they come and say, I'm really struggling with porn. <laughs> and we all say, yeah, yeah. We all have those struggles or, okay, you know, brother, I know I'm me eating too. too much. And, yep. 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 <laughs> and, and so I think over time, what happens is the the standard has changed that God understands. And I think mm. it's a, a misconception of grace as opposed to, you know, when we do things that God says don't, he, he wasn't like a prude that doesn't want you to have a great life right. or that doesn't understand your sexual needs. He wants to give us the best. And so I think what's happened over time is we sort of give each other a pass. And, and then I want to be very kind to, to our your listeners, is uh, biblical, Bible illiteracy is so high right now. I've really met, I had, I could tell you the pastor's name in Atlanta and the church, and I know him and we're friends, and I know he teaches the Bible. And I had um, about 12, 20 somethings in a small group in my home. And we were walking through Romans 12 for a few months because my, it was a season where my daughter was, was there. Great. And I mean, a third of them were living together. And when we got, and they looked at me like, oh. Is that a problem? Exactly. Yeah. And, wow. and it wasn't like they were rebellious, belligerent. I'm not going to do what God says. It was like, oh, wow. Well, I mean, that can't be for today, can it? Wow. So, you know, if you don't know the scriptures and if the culture continually sort of dumbs things down, I think then we get to the point where you know, with good intentions, we give one another a pass. Here's the challenge. And I want to say this as gently as possible. I was one of those people who was, I didn't grow up as a Christian. I never opened the Bible until I was 18. And all the people who said that they were believers didn't live any differently. They cussed the way I did. They spent their money the way I did. 
they, they thought lustful thoughts the way I did. And they were telling me that I needed Jesus. And I thought, why? You look just like me. It undermines the gospel. And it wasn't until I met some very Christ-like followers that introduced me to the Jesus of the New Testament that it was like, wow, if that's the standard, I need grace. I don't measure up. Hmm. Oh, man. Those are some great thoughts, some great caveats as well. So tell us about the process of transformation. Like you said in this book, you ground that in Ephesians 4. What, what's the process? Okay, I'm going to give you, you know, if people have a Bible a little bit later, uh, the process, first and foremost, is we live out, out of our identity in Christ. Verse 1 of Ephesians 4, walk in a manner worthy. The second, the cocoon. In other words, little green worms become butterflies in a very specific environment. And the first six verses will say an authentic, deep, other-centered relationships. Uh, The process then is it's not your power, it's Christ. And verses 7 through 10, we'll talk about Jesus declaring victory over death, Satan, and demonic activity. And then the process involves a, a, a special supernatural community that we call it the church. In verses 11 to 16, we'll talk about the roles and gifts in the church that, that allow us to grow so we can learn. And then the, the real nitty gritty, what I do and you do personally is verses 17 to 24. And it talks about this putting off the old. Uh, it's, a, it's a picture of taking off old, dirty clothes, having your mind renewed, and then putting on new clothes. So it's, okay, you know, for me, for example, is, boy, my lustful thoughts, my mouth, my egotism, my narcissism, my arrogance. Okay, that, I need to, be drastic. I want to put that off. Now I need to get into God's word and renew my mind. Think what, what's it look like instead of being that way to being kind and loving and humble. And then I put on the new man. And really then what you have in verses 25 to 32 is once we get that principle and it's all through scripture, life change is not about focusing on behavior, emotions. You always start with your thinking as a man or woman thinks in your heart. So you become. The mindset on the flesh, death, the mindset on the spirit, life and peace. I mean, it's a great study, just the mind. But then what he does, and this is critical, and I hope we get to talk a bit about it, is certain things have been so deeply rooted in our our flesh, our old DNA, that it's not about trying hard, even knowing who you are in Christ, you have to go into training. And mm-hmm. so he gives five specific areas of training in verses 25 to 32 that I think are strategic and in order about you know, you need to go into training about integrity uh, and training about diligence, your emotions, anger, um, relationships, your mouth, uh, your attitudes. And each one, he gives you the pattern. Take this off, think differently like this and put this on. And so it's that process that happens in community and, and, and that it's, it's over time. And, and mm-hmm. like with a little baby, you know, I love the metaphor. He says, walk in a manner. You know, you, you, you introduced me with 12 grandkids. Well, I've got an old one at 18. I've got a young one at two. When my grandkids started walking two steps forward and they fall flat on their face, <laughs> I didn't run over and say, get up. What's wrong with you? I, you know, you took two steps now. You know, we, we need to let our brothers and sisters know walking is a process where you do. You take a couple, three steps, progress, and you fall, you stumble. And so it's, God wants to hold our hand. He wants to help us learn. This is not an environment of harshness, of Mm. get with the program, or what's wrong with you, or condemnation. Amen. I love it. And if if listeners can listen really carefully, they might have heard my two-and-a-half-year-old shrieking in the background. 
(laughs) (laughs) There's an illustration because, you know, I threatened them. I threatened them to be quiet, but, you know, she's two and a half. So that's going to happen. It's all part of the process. So, and, and this is kind of related to what you were just talking about. I love how you talk about the training, right? That has to happen. And I think a big paradox that kind of sits at the heart of sanctification, that's the fancy word for what we're talking about, transformation or change, um, is that the spirit works within us to produce the change. And yet there's this role for human effort as well. Can you talk about that, unpack that a little bit? Yes, I'll I'll do my best. And, but let's not, I guess, let me just say there is a certain mystery to this. Here's what we know. Mm. Only God can change a life. Mm. but he chooses never to do it alone. God gave me lungs, but he doesn't suck in the air. (laughs) And and that's my responsibility. And so we have a responsibility, I think, to position ourselves. Maybe a metaphor helps here is, you know, the right soil, the right sunlight, the right environment, the light nutrients, but you can do all that, but you still can't make a plant grow. Mm. I don't know how it happens and no one does. But the seed of God's word always grows 100% of the time, but it does require effort. There in Ephesians 4, up toward the top, after, you know, he talks about bearing with one another, then he says, make every effort. We get our, na- we get our word for gymnasium. In other words, it's strenuous. Do whatever it takes to maintain this unity, to live in such a way where your beliefs and your behavior tell the same story. And so I think there's certain things where uh, we get stuck and and often rooted in family of origin. So I I struggled with workaholism. I mean, unbelievable performance orientation. And then when I became a Christian, I was very slow at getting going. But once I did, it was like, okay. I mean, the people that get the strokes around here, I don't think I thought this out loud was they memorize scripture, they lead Bible studies. Well, I just went nuts. You know, I mean, if God loves you when you pray, well, I'll pray an hour. And if God loves you, I'll memorize chapters, not verses. And so I went nuts. And in about three years, I became perhaps the most religious, self-righteous jerk that I knew. And I'd lost sight of relationship. I thought I had a second job. Mm. I was duty filled all the time. And it was in the midst of that, that this breakthrough of identity came. And I realized I, my joy, but I, the workaholism, I mean, I, I was always the, the short skinny guard. I had to be an overachiever. I always, my dad was an alcoholic and I have family of, you know, no matter what you did, it didn't quite measure up. And, hmm. and so breaking that, I mean, I tried hard, you know, I don't want to be that way, but it was a default. And I remember reading some Dallas Willard and John Ortberg and the whole idea of spiritual training. And so I went into training. And one of the things was I realized my workaholism was rooted in grandiosity. So I was late to things or a minute late because I had so much to do. And I was the last one on the plane. And I remember driving in the right slow lane for two years to go into training to simply realize that everyone around me has important places to go. Mm. I don't need to weave into traffic. I'll get to the airport a half hour early. I'm going to relax. I'll read a book if I'm that early. I went into training. I I struggled. I, I didn't, I just thought every man faked it after about three years. I could not break out of lust. And I went into training and I, I went through the verses that talked about what's true of me in those areas and I did some media fasting 
and I memorized some passages and I went into training over time to look girls in the eye, to appreciate them as sisters. And it, it was, it was a journey. And as you discover some of these holes, you know, sanctification is a patchwork affair. Mm -hmm. You know, read church history. Some of the greatest Christians who did wonderful things that we write about when you get closer, you know, the Martin Luther had some really warped views of, of Jews, uh, or, I mean, you can't find, you know, Calvin, you can talk about, you know, the guy that ended up being killed because he disagreed with Calvin in his city. You know, we're a patchwork affair. And so I think we need to realize you got to go into training and some things and you need people around you that will love you and be honest. Hmm. That's so important. Oh, that's good. Yes. Go into training. I love it. Especially to unearth those blind spots and then cooperate with God's spirit to work in your life, to heal and change you. Well, I'm going to ask you a couple questions about, about writing as we do at the end of this podcast, but this has been excellent. And I want to encourage listeners to check out the book unless you're, I mean, unless you're totally sanctified. Okay. Unless you've completely arrived <laughs> um, and, and you're looking exactly like Jesus. But if you're not, if you're like me, uh, you'll definitely want to check out this book. Yes, you really can change what to do when you're spiritually stuck by Chip Ingram. Chip, a couple of questions. You know, I, I remember a friend, I won't say his name because I didn't get permission, but he described you as having this genius when it comes to teaching. And he described it like you, you could almost like reach inside a person's soul and speak straight to their needs. And I think a part of, of the your ability to do that is that you ask such great questions. And that comes through in the book as well. Tell us, what's the secret to asking good questions? You know, I'll answer with the story. People will chuckle is, you know, I was, I was trained, you know, I, to, to teach the Bible in an expositional way. And so mm-hmm. I was in the Bible Belt for a while and everyone liked that. And so I went to Santa Cruz and God caused this church. It literally blew up from like eight or 900 people to like 5,000 in about uh, six or seven years. And I was teaching through the gospel, the gospel of Mark. And Santa Cruz is one of the most unchurched, satanic cults, new age. I mean, less than probably three or 4% believers out of 200,000 and, and a really weird uh, place to live. And so a guy, but people were coming to Christ and this guy after about the fourth week says, hey, is this guy ever going to show up? I said, who? Mark, you keep talking about him. And, <laughs> and, I said, oh, and then, you know, we would, uh, you know, I would, might God was just working. It was, and so I would, I might give an invitation and 20 people line up and I would just pass out gospel of John's because we only had three people on staff and uh, come back next week and we'll tell you more. And pretty soon what I realized was they would come and we would, you know, we had new members class and we'd have to start with, okay, the really big numbers are called chapters and the little numbers are called verses. Wow. And there's a really big part. We'll get to that later. The small part's called the New Testament. And, and it was just a flood of all these people. And, and, and I'm, I'm going to get to asking questions. And what I realized was I was absolutely committed because I think you have to teach the Bible in sequence. I, not that I never did any topical, but 85% was I'm going to teach through books of the Bible. But what I realized was for the uneducated and it was like, you guys are speaking Greek, literally to me. Mm. And so uh, I, I love to study the scriptures and, you know, I outline whole books before I teach them. And I had this moment of, uh, I call it spiritual jeopardy. 
And I'll never forget the very first book that I did this on. It was the book of James. And I'd studied the whole book and I was going to teach you the book of James. And I said, no, I'm not going to do it like that. You know, chapter one, most of our listeners will know, you know, it's the very first book of the New Testament. All these terrible things are happening. Consider it all joy. There's challenges, blessing, etc. So I studied it and I realized James chapter one is the answer. What's the question? Hmm. The question is, how do you rebuild your broken world? Hmm. Their, their, their world fell apart. They don't have money. They're being abandoned by family. There's persecution. So then my introduction was, how do you rebuild your broken world? What do you do when your wife walks out on you? What do you do when you lose your job unjustly? What do you do when you get cancer? And what do you do when, well, guess what? Everyone's leaning forward. And then yeah. I said, can you imagine if Jesus would walk in here right now and you said, Lord, would you help us figure out how to rebuild our broken world? Hmm. And everyone's leaning forward. And I said, you know what? He did one better. He wrote it down through his brother, James. And then I said, here's the first thing. Don't ask what. Don't ask why. Ask what. And then I teach the first four verses. And then, you know, you, you could ask him, but then you get stuck because there's not, I don't have a lot of verses on, should we relocate? Should I get another job? What if you don't know what to do? So then the next one, verses, you know, five through eight, is about ask God for wisdom. So what I've done primarily is I, I, then I went through, you know, chapter three was how to change for the better because it's about the tongue. Five lies that ruin relationships is chapter four and half of chapter five. Yes, you really can change is Ephesians chapter four. But what I did is I took the answers and I flipped them. And what I know is the principles are universal. Everyone struggles with insecurity, pain, relationships, hurts. And so once I've got the answer, then I'm asking the question, okay, this was the answer to that group in the first century, or maybe it's an Old Testament passage. How can I flip it? Now, I, I don't squeeze the passage or the truth into it. How do I flip it where if I'm honest and consistent and I go through each of these paragraphs, uh, what does it say and what does it say about what it says? And then I write out, this is the truth. And then I say, what truth, what questions does it raise? And so I think it happened there in Santa Cruz because they were, I mean, they didn't know anything. The great part was they didn't have any baggage. I mean, right. yeah. I mean you tell them, oh. And so I think that pattern grew. And honestly, most of the books that I have written all grew out of teaching through a, a section of scripture or mm. a book of the Bible that... I just ask, so what questions are we asking and struggling with that this answered then and it answers today? And I think maybe yeah. the reason it resonates, Drew, is because it's, it is God's word. Right. We, we may be, you know, 2,000 years down the road and have more technology and blah, 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 blah. But, hey, you know, we struggle in our marriage. We struggle with loneliness. <laughs> yeah, human nature hasn't changed. temptation. You know, we're human. Exactly. No, I think that's brilliant. And it leads perfectly into my last question for you, which is uh, obviously you're a teacher, you're a preacher, but you're also a writer. And as you know, uh, you know, teaching in front of a uh, an audience in front of a congregation and writing uh, are different animals. And I'm assuming that your preaching, uh, as you have already mentioned, kind of feeds into that writing. What does that process look like for you? Uh, let me say this for either 
young buddy develop, budding developing writers is if if there's a way to try to do it, I've tried it. I bet I've <laughs> tried seven or eight different ways. So for me, because I've done all the study up front, and then uh, one of the things wherever I teach, I, I I give them my outline, and then I think, okay, this teaching time, my goal is not that they read it or just listen. My goal is life change. Mm. That's God's goal. So I have questions on on all my teaching notes, and all my notes are available online, and they're all free because what I want people to do is then I, I have this. People can, I think this will be helpful even for writers is think of a, like a cylinder, you know, it's, it's wide or a funnel, it's wide at the top and then it gets narrow. And so I have questions at the end of every message that I give. And I start with feel questions. How do you feel? Cause you can't get those wrong. That's just who you are. And then I'll go to a think question that forces them to kind of get back into the content. And then I want to move to some applicational questions like, or, or a question that, you know, if, if you thought about responding to God's word in this way, what's the biggest barrier? Help them think through the process. And then what's one specific baby step you could take and tying it into the passage? So then when I'm turning it into something that is in written form, then I have to go back and say, okay, I introduced it with this illustration because it was a live audience and that was a group. Wow. It's a shame. This it's, it's Does it work specific. for the, the book, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to work. It's not going to work. And so what I do is I have all the messages, all the transcripts and all my outlines. And I, I, I literally sort of storyboard them and mm. I, I line them all out. And then it's like, okay, so now in a chapter, where do I break it? What do I need to leave out? And I've done it everything from finding someone that's a way better writer than me and say, there's all my transcripts. There's all that. Could you do a first draft? Hmm. And then it would be like, wow, I spent seven hours a chapter rewriting. And then I've done it with, because I don't, I dictate, I don't type well at all. And so I have written on a yellow pad, every single word of a book. I've done it that way. Oh, and then no. I've done it where combination where I dictated part of it. And then I had to go back through and change it all. And uh, honestly, for those, I am, I don't see myself as a gifted writer. I think I'm a communicator and I believe writing so powerfully changes lives. I just go draft after draft after draft after draft until when I pick it up and read it, I picture, and I read it like a skeptic. I read it like, even, and when I get done with my message preparation, the first thing I ask is an unbeliever walked in, they sat in the back row. I, I've got to pull you off the back row and engage you. And this has to matter to you because mm. if I do, and especially if you're only 16 or 18 years old, if I can get that person to track with me and the PhDs in the room to say, well, he's kind of folksy, but boy, he did his research, <laughs> you know, yeah. then, then that's what I'm always trying to do. And so when I even read what I've written and I read about three or four paragraphs and I realize I'm starting to get bored, this mm. is no good. Yeah. So, Anyway, no, that's good, man. So you got to, I think yeah. you got to keep it interactive and, you know, it's not just one, we got to get our ego out of writing. The goal is not that they like me or they like the book. Mm. The goal is that they engage, that it literally becomes this moment where for a Christian writer, 
God is using these words to take them to this place where they're now interacting with God and themselves and pondering and processing. And, and the book just becomes a conduit for that. And yeah, you're going to share some stories because they need to know. Uh, I think every so often, the reason I share stories, uh, some about some successes, but, but also about, hey, if you're struggling with this, you know, like, welcome to the NFL. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't, right? Yeah. Now, if you stay struggling with this forever and ever, you know, you're missing something. But uh, I think people, people long for someone to believe in them and to know that God does. And so I always want to, you know, I might, as one guy told me, he said, Chip, I, I think this is your gift. You have the gift of putting your arm around me and making me feel like you're really for me and we're taking a walk and somehow kicking me in the rear end at the same time. <laughs> you know? so I said, well, yeah, there's always going to be some challenge because you have to have challenge to grow. But I always want you to know it's in a context of we're, we're all in this together. God's not down on us. And yes, you really can change. That's the agenda. I, I long for people to get to experience that. Amen. Amen. Chip, it's been a pleasure. And and listeners, I do want to implore you to check out this book. You will feel uh, Chip's arm around your shoulder and occasionally uh, a kick in the rear end as well. Uh, <laughs> the title again is Yes, You Really Can Change uh, What to Do When You're Spiritually Stuck. And I, I want to encourage you to head over to moodypublishers.com to grab your copy because there it is 20% off. And so that'll oh, probably wow, even great. be cheaper than Amazon. And hey, listen, when you can support, you know, some place other than Amazon, that's always good. <laughs> Nothing against Amazon, but they're kind of the big boy on the block. Also, if you enjoy this conversation, I want to encourage you to uh, head over to Apple or Google Podcasts and leave us a rating or a review. That just helps us, you know, helps other people find the podcast because we're still fairly new. So we're still looking for new listeners all the time. And it just makes us feel good. And thank you again, Chip and listeners for joining us. And until next time, keep reading and writing.